Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Well, it is 4th of July week here in the nation's capital, and uh, lots been going on. Um, it's I can't believe it's July already. I, I don't know where the time is going. I think the time is just flying by. And uh, I'm looking forward to the 4th. It's one of my favorite times of the year, one of my favorite holidays. But of course, the president is throwing his ilk into making the 4th of July celebration here in D.C. a partisan Trump rally. So I'm very upset about that. I've been railing about it. I'm going to talk about that in a minute um, because I just think it's outrageous. But on this week's episode, I have um, Max Boot, who is a Washington Post columnist and he's an author. He's a foreign policy expert. He's been on the show before. And he's been writing some really, really, really good um, columns lately about all the craziness that's been going on, especially Trump's trip overseas and the Dem debates last week. So Max will be on to talk about that. And he he doesn't hold anything back. And, you know, Max is so even handed uh, most of the time. And he's pretty passionate about what's been going on because it's just been so outrageous. So stay tuned for Max Boot. He is uh, coming up in a couple minutes. Um, but a lot of people, uh, if you don't follow me on Twitter, um, then you wouldn't know what my initial thoughts were, but the democratic debates, I got to talk about that first. So we finally got to see 20 of the democratic candidates on stage, 10 on one night, 10 on the second night. And it's, so it's like officially campaign season is kicked off. The democratic primary is well underway and, uh, you know, I, for someone like me who is almost politically homeless at this point, I, I watched those debates really hoping that for people like myself or people who are in the center right or center left, the moderates, I guess I'm considered a moderate now. I really don't consider myself a moderate, but I guess in today's terms I am. I don't know. But I was looking for someone to emerge Everyone knows that I like Joe Biden, and I was hoping he would have a good showing, but I wasn't quite sure how he would do, because he's a little rusty, and clearly that was on display. Um, the first night wasn't Joe Biden. The first night was Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker, uh, Beto O'Rourke, and a couple others, you know, however many of them. And you know, the first night, I was like, you know what? This is kind of refreshing, because everybody on stage was smart. Whether you agree with them or not, obviously I don't have a lot in common with progressive policies, like nothing almost, Um, but it was refreshing and I wrote this for CNN.com. Oftentimes I'll do reaction pieces on things like that for CNN if I'm not on air. And so um, my reaction was during that two hour debate, there were no childlike insults. There weren't any antics. It was just smart people having a debate about different issues facing this country. And I was like, well, what do you know? It was nice to see it. Uh, I thought that the kind of the rapid fire pace of it, like they have a minute and then to to respond, I mean, like a minute to give their answers and then 30 seconds to respond. I kind of liked the pace. It didn't drag, I didn't think anyway. And I thought that Elizabeth Warren did a good job. I mean, the the exchanges on healthcare and on immigration were fascinating. Again, I don't agree with any of them. But um, Julian Castro tore apart Beto O'Rourke, who I can't stand, by the way. I think Beto O'Rourke is like 
so emo. Um, I, I can't take it. He's like, he's like the, the rich kid who just goes out there to find himself. And I, I just, so he's, I think he's done. He doesn't stand a chance. Plus Pete Buttigieg basically has taken away any of the excitement from or work for the millennial crowd there. Uh, also cause Pete Buttigieg is just smarter. He's just more thoughtful and uh, presents better and smarter on the issues. And O'Rourke is just kind of, uh, he's an empty suit. I felt, and Julian Castro just ripped him apart. Um, Cory Booker had some good moments, but again, I know, I, I think almost no one except for maybe Elizabeth Warren, who I still think she would lose 40 plus states to Trump but uh, really has a shot in that second group. So then you go to night two, where you had Biden and Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar. Um, Oh, um, who else was there? Oh, Sanders. Uh, You know, so the second night was a little more raucous than than the first night. People were, oh, Kirsten Gillibrand, she, she's got to go to. That crazy Marianne Williamson, who oh, I'd never heard of her before, but she was, she shouldn't have been up there. Get the hell out of here with this woman. Uh, who else was up there that I'm like, go, go away. Oh, that Eric Swalwell, terrible, terrible. It seemed like he was running for junior high school class president, but he took a swipe at Biden about his age, about passing the torch. And it was just like, okay, I get it that that's, a vulnerability for Biden in some in some demographics, but its experience is an asset in others. So, but he, you know, he went after him, and I was, uh, but it wasn't effective. He came across uh, irritating and obnoxious. That's Swalwell, and uh, but Kamala Harris, she was the star of the show on Thursday night, and I wrote about this for CNN.com also. Um. You know, I I don't know that Kamala Harris can win the Electoral College states, you know, the, the Electoral College, which is what you need on a popular vote. I don't know. Is she going to bring the votes back from, Demo- from the Republicans that stole the Obama coalition folks or the people that stayed home in, in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa, like those states? Is she able to get those those votes back from Republicans, from the Trump people? I don't know. I don't know. But I think Biden could. And, but Joe Biden had a rocky debate. I'm not going to lie. I was not completely happy with his performance. He needs to sharpen his answers. He seemed a bit aloof at times. And he just, well, I mean, he was, I think he was also trying to be too much of a gentleman. Uh, You know, he was, I don't think he was prepared for the kneecapping that Kamala Harris did to him. I just think it was a cheap shot over this whole thing with busing. And I got to say, Democrats, what the hell are we doing? What are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? Bringing up, you're, you're going after Joe Biden over an issue from 40 freaking years ago where he, where, I mean, busing was very controversial and he, and Joe Biden's whole career, he has done, he has been a champion of civil rights and things like that. For The Democrats lauded him on a lot of things. I mean, he's got, he's caught, he's caught some shit for the crime bill in 94, but that again, that you have to understand the context of that. Um, and with mass incarceration and all that. But it, but Joe Biden, he just, in 2018, he won an award from the National Civil Rights Museum. I mean, he's, no one's ever questioned his commitment to civil rights. Come on. 
and under Barack Obama as his vice president for eight years, everybody loved Joe Biden. And over the last four decades, he's built up a lot of goodwill, a lot in the black community. So Kamala Harris deciding to get her viral viral moment at the debate by kneecapping Joe Joe Biden over this he you know he liked to hang out with segregationists and he was on the wrong side of history with busing I thought was really unfair an effective debate tool but in the greater scheme of things I thought it was it was unfair and she's starting to catch the backlash for it now now the other side of it is that Biden should have been prepared for that this story had been in the news for two weeks. It had been plaguing him because he didn't, um, because he used some terms before about describing Senator Eastland, who was one of these segregationist bastards. And Biden should have just been like, look, if I apologize that the language I used came across as racially insensitive when I was telling the stories of how I worked with these guys. But that the greater point was I have the experience to be able to work on both sides of the aisle. If we want the government to work, you have to have some kind of compromise and the ability to work with the other side. That was the bigger point of him bringing up the story about working with Senator Eastland and some of these other segregationists at the time. You have to understand something about the Senate. Committee chairmen are very powerful and they basically dictate what bills get through and go to the the Senate majority leader who will determine if it gets a vote. So here you have Joe Biden, who's a freshman senator. He's like 30 years old, dealing with the old guard of these racist Southern Democrat segregationists who controlled everything. And they had for years. So he had to go along to get along, give a little bit to get something. And it wasn't that he was sympathetic to their horrible racist views. Joe Biden's career started after the riots in in Delaware, after Martin Luther King had been assassinated, there were riots in a, in a bunch of the cities in this country, in, in black neighborhoods. Del, uh, Wilmington was not immune to that. And Joe Biden himself said, look, I became a public defender. That was a shot that he <laughs> at, at, at Kamala Harris because she was a prosecutor. And even her record in California is under scrutiny when she was the attorney general of California and when she was a DA in the city of San Francisco in Alameda County. She she had a questionable record from a progressive point of view that will come under more scrutiny, I think. But if she's going to go after Joe Biden, like I just thought it, the, I, the whole question over busing and whether he was right or wrong about it. And she told the story, emotional story about how she was the, the little girl who was part of the second class to integrate in Berkeley, California, very effective debate tool. And it was difficult for Joe Biden, clearly unprepared for the cheap shot to even explain his position, which was pretty nuanced in 30 seconds or a minute. And, but he, tried but then he kind of fumbled over it he 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 got his he got his ass handed to him by by Harris who is an effective cross-examiner like I said she was a prosecutor if you've ever watched her in senate hearings and questioning witnesses she's very good at that so she was on her game she brought her a game Biden did not so now they have to fight back the idea that, oh, maybe he's not ready. Maybe he doesn't have the fire in the belly. Oh my goodness, if Kamala Harris can eat his lunch, how's he gonna handle Donald Trump? I think all that's a bit premature. Does Biden need to get his act together? Absolutely. His campaign needs to get their acts together. They need to, they have a a couple weeks until the next debate, which is um, CNN sponsored, 
end of July. And they need to just put it in a better performance. But, you know, the situation, this whole thing about trying to make um, uh, Biden seem as though is he some racially insensitive uh, relic, I thought was really unfair. And it wasn't organic. Kamala Harris had been practicing this. They'd been preparing for it. They had the picture of her at the bus stop ready to go and tweeted that out right away. They even had T-shirts made up. So they were able to fundraise all over it. And I think there were a lot of people in the party that were like, what are you doing, Kamala? Like, okay, it was, yeah, you got your moment. She got a bump in the polls as a result. It showed a little bit of a kink in the armor for for, for Biden. But that's a short-term politically expedient um, reward. Why would you want to damage Biden, who is the front runner and possibly most likely going to get the nominee nomination and go up against Trump. Why would you want to put a question now with black voters and possibly suppress black voters if he's the nominee? The same thing happened with Hillary. They was the, some you know people were were I don't know if it was the the super progressive left or where it was coming from. Um, but they capitalized on her whole super predator comment back in the 90s. And there were a lot of black men that did not vote for her. And Democrats, a lot of people stayed home. And I made this point on CNN. Hillary Clinton only lost by 78,000 votes from three states, 11,000 votes in Michigan. That is even that's not even a sold out NBA game. OK, 4.4 million Obama voters stayed home in 2016. They did not vote. 36% of those people were black. So you're looking at 1.6 million black votes that were not cast in 2016 that were in 2012. So that means that there were a lot of black voters who were like, I'm not voting. They weren't, they, they weren't feeling it. Even though black women voted at the highest percentage than any other demographic for Democrats. It was like 95 or 98%, something like that. But not black men. Donald Trump got 8% of the black vote, for God's sakes. That's a lot compared to in the past. So the, even that, that's how close the election was. So I feel like, Democrats, why are you doing this circular firing squad where you're going to possibly suppress voting in, in the black community in the general election f- to score some political points now in a debate a year a year later um, before the election. I, I don't know. And but Kamala Harris, she got a boost. The recent CNN poll came out and showed that Biden lost 10 points and she gained 11. So he's at 22 percent now and she's at 17 percent in the CN- new, newest CNN poll. That's a direct result of him not having a great debate. So, but polls are just a snapshot in time. That's now in, you know, June, July of 2019. But it is definitely a wake-up call. You know, you can't play prevent defense if you're Joe Biden just to protect your lead. I'm a football fan, so I, I, that's the first thing I thought. I'm like, you can't just play it safe, buddy. You can't do it. You're going to have to go on the offensive. And that doesn't mean yelling. <laughs> like, I don't know, like Bernie Sanders constantly screaming at people. doesn't mean that. It means that you, but you need to be, you cannot underestimate your opponent. And if you're explaining you're losing, and that's exactly what Joe Biden had been doing for the last couple of weeks over the segregationist um, comments. And I just thought that it was a, a missed opportunity. He's got to get it together.
So we'll see. We'll see what happens and um, keeping an eye on it. I still have faith in, in Uncle Joe, but um, he can't let that happen again. And, you know, Kamala Harris and, and I guess their calculation was they were going to get their moment, raise money off of it and keep it moving. But I also made this point on CNN recently about the idea of fomenting racial division in this country. I mean, we're literally for the last five days, we've been freaking talking about busing from the 19 freaking 70s. Democrats, hear me when I tell you this. This purity test of who's more woke than the next is going to lose this election for you. That is not going to move the voters you need to move to vote for you to get Trump out. Getting Donald Trump out of office is the number one freaking priority. Nothing else matters. All of those other left-wing policy things, you know, Medicare for all and and all the crazy things that that, that Democrats were were putting out there as policy prescriptions. I'm, you know, obviously I don't agree with them, but those kinds of things will alienate the voters you need to oust Trump. So stop this. Stop this. You have to be more thoughtful about the approach. There's about 15 of the 24 candidates, maybe more, that um, 18 of the 24 candidates need to get the hell out of the race now. They, They don't stand a snowball's chance in hell of ever becoming the nominee. You've got about five or six who are possibles, right? You've got Biden, Harris, Buttigieg, Sanders, um, Warren and maybe a Booker or somebody like that in the lower tier. That is it, people. Okay, all the rest of them need to get the hell out of the race. These are just vanity candidacies, and they're taking away resources and time and voters from the top tier candidates. We went through this with the Republicans, and we saw what happened. Donald freaking Trump emerged because so many of these Republicans, like Ben freaking Carson and others, wouldn't get the hell out of the race. So Democrats, please, I beg of you, do not make the mistakes that the Republicans made. Honestly, honestly, Kamala Harris goes, goes after, after Biden saying, oh, you know, well, are you going to apologize? You're on the wrong side of history. She, believe me when I tell you, her record as attorney general in California can come under scrutiny with the black community. Because there were times where she was very, quote, law and order, and the things that she advocated when she was in that position of power put a lot of black folks in jail, whether it was advocating for the death, keeping the death penalty, whether it was not um, on the she was not on the right side of wrongful conviction cases. The ACLU blasted her for her for a bunch of cases that were wrongful convictions that her office didn't properly dismiss at the time when they should have. I mean, there's many examples. I mean, she tried to criminalize truancy. So like that, that the parents of truant elementary school kids could be prosecuted criminally with misdemeanors. Uh, You know, however, now, of course, that disproportionately affects lower income black families, black parents. There are a lot. She advocated for keeping prison camps, uh, prison labor. Yeah, because there's a whole, you know, the whole prison industrial complex thing. That's real. And I have to tell you, I've evolved on that issue. I used to be very law and order. I used to be all about private prisons until I saw how it all really worked. And I was like, oh, wow, this is actually not a good thing. Good in some ways, very, very bad in other ways. So in California, that's a it's a it was a controversial issue. And she was in favor of keeping the prison labor where, you know, well, we need them for wildfires and other things. It's like they 
it's but then on, on one hand she's talking about how she's Kamala for the people but on the other hand her record in California I mean she did some good things there were some criminal justice reform things that she did that that are approved by the left wing but she also did a lot of other things that are really anathema to the 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 the, the criminal justice inequity crowd and she has to answer for it but I'm sure she had to engage in some of those things in order to get elected. And that's the same thing like with Joe Biden. So don't try to don't, you know, don't try to come after Biden for things that you did similarly, which was you advocated for positions possibly that you may not have necessarily believed in, but you're but it, it was necessary to get other things done. Well, it was the same thing with Joe Biden in the 19 freaking 70s. So enough now already enough. I think you're just, they're just, it's ridiculous. And the Biden campaign should be prepared to defend themselves and to, and to hit back if they have to. They really do. So we'll see what happens coming up in, in uh, the end of this month. I just hope that Biden gets it together. Come on. Um, let me talk a little bit about this freaking 4th of July event. So 4th of July is this week. And like I said, I, I love this time of year. Um, we were, I was hoping to go down the shore down in Jersey this week, but my husband has to go through some mandatory training at the job. And so he couldn't take the time off. So we're stuck in DC now being stuck in DC for the fourth used to not be a big deal because DC is cool. It's a great place for the 4th of July, the fireworks, the Capitol, um, the Capitol, uh, concert they do, you can watch it on, on, on PBS usually. And it's great. It's, it's really cool. It's super patriotic and you're in Washington, in the past, when I worked over, uh, when I worked in Capitol Hill, I had access to the outdoor um, balconies over there on Capitol Hill, so it was a, a beautiful view of the of the fireworks. So it was really cool. And last year, we we watched the fireworks up on a rooftop, and it was awesome. Just like the fireworks in New York are amazing. It's just they're just spectacular. And who doesn't love fireworks? They're awesome, except for animals. I feel sorry for my 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 kitty and some of the dogs and stuff. But just be responsible with your fireworks, folks. Um, but this year when I found out that Donald Trump was obsessed over changing the 4th of July celebration here in DC, I was like, Oh, come on. And I talk about this with, with Max boot. So you, you can hear what his response is, but coming up in a, in a couple minutes, but I was like, Oh my God, it's just like Rick Wilson. Everything Trump touches dies. Even the 50 year tradition of the Capitol celebration for independence day. This has been going on for 50 years, the same way every year, and they do it well. It is a well-oiled machine here. Not this year. It's a cluster. Why? Because Trump couldn't get his way with the military parade. Remember this? He went to Bastille Day in Paris and saw this big grandiose parade in France and was like, oh, I want one of those. And so then he came back and told the military to draw up plans for a military parade. And the Department of Defense was like, oh, my God, WTF, are you kidding me with this? And so obviously our military, we, we don't do military parades in this country. What are we, some kind of South American coup country? What are we, North Korea or the Soviet Union showing our, you know, our strength with tanks rolling down the road with, with you know, missile batteries? Get the hell out of here. That's not what America does. And you damn sure don't do that on, the, on Independence Day. It's not what it's about. Okay. And Trump now has made Independence Day his new military parade because the DOD found, figured out a way 
to squash that. That's still when Matt, uh, General Mattis was the Secretary of Defense. And you know the military guys are like, we're not freaking doing this. So they were able to basically leak out how much it would cost. And the cost was like $92 million, almost $100 million to do this military parade. And DC officials came out, everybody came out and said, first of all, it's gonna cost $100 million. Secondly, tanks rolling down the roads, these roads weren't built to sustain tanks. They're like 60 tons. You're talking about Abrams, M1 tanks and armored vehicles. Like it'll tear up the roads. We're not doing this. So Trump threw a temper tantrum, but he had to acquiesce because he couldn't really defend it. Nobody wanted this but him. Well, now he's figured out a way to get his damn parade. He's going to have this, quote, salute to America celebration at the Lincoln Memorial on 4th of July. Well, this disrupts the 50-year tradition of the Capitol celebration because they have to move the fireworks now. Usually the fireworks are on the reflection pool, reflect, reflecting pool. Now they have to move it to the West, uh, West Potomac Park, which is to the side of the Lincoln Memorial. Well, there's added costs to that. Everybody had to make adjustments. And Donald Trump, according to the Washington Post and other publications, he has been involved in every little detail about this whole thing. He's like obsessed with this. It's like producing a show. Dude, you are the freaking president of the United States. Why are you worrying about the fourth choreographing the freaking Fourth of July celebration? This guy is, is sick. But that's what he was doing all up in it, getting briefings by the Department of Interior and this one and that one. And the park police isn't happy about it, but they have to go along. I mean, there's like this park police um, uh, private, like, uh, I don't know if they're uh, an alumni organization or what, but this advocacy group for the park police, they're like, this is irresponsible. The park police has $11 billion in, uh, in backlog maintenance for different locations across the country, whether it was from disaster relief or things that happened, but $11 billion backlog. And now they're wasting extra money so that Trump can get off on having a 4th of July uh, a celebration under the guise of a salute to America. Get the hell out of here. Now he wants flyovers, military flyovers. That shit costs money, people. You know how much it costs? I, the Washington Post had a great article about this and they outline it. Because strangely, the Department of Defense really hasn't come out with any kind of full-throated um, defense of what's going on. Like they haven't been, they're, they're not on board with this. Okay, I can tell you right now. The DOD is looking at this like, come on with this guy. This is a waste of resources, a waste of money, waste of manpower, like, and it's partisan. Fourth of July has never been partisan. Most presidents, they give a... You know, God bless America, we're the greatest country in the world, and God bless our founders, yay, kind of a videotaped message, and they stay stay away from any kind of major things on Fourth of July because they don't want to they don't want it to be partisan. It's about the birth of our great nation. But oh, not Donald Trump. This is how much it costs. I have the figures right here. So to fly an F-35, it's $30,000 an hour. The Blue Angels, if anybody's ever seen them in like air shows and stuff, they're amazing, the Blue Angels. $10,000 an hour. And they were supposed to have a couple days off because these guys fly a lot. The Blue Angels, they have a really rigorous schedule. And of course, I'm sure they were looking forward to being home with their families in between air shows. But no, screw that because, you know, the, the man child in the White House wants his military displays on the 4th of July. So the Blue Angels, $10,000 an hour. Air Force One, he was talking about he wants Air Force One to fly over. It's $140,000 an hour 
for Air Force One. That's right, $140,000. This is insanity. Now, there's another argument again about the damn tanks. He's like, well, I still want tanks. He wants armored vehicles and tanks along the mall. So there's still no, no estimate from the Department of Defense or how logistically they're going to pull this off. The fireworks, they're normally about 20, 20 minutes or so. And the National Park Service has a contract with a fireworks company called Garden State Fireworks. And in 2018, it was like $271,000 for the fireworks display. And it's a beautiful display. Nobody's going to complain about that, right? But then once Trump announced that he was doing the Salute to America BS, two other fireworks companies decided to donate $750,000 worth of fireworks. And that's um, Phantom Fireworks. If you see them, they're kind of like the fireworks places. Um, well, like, well, I'm from New Jersey. You're not allowed to buy fireworks. But in other places, they have, you know, they're like, they have pop-up shops. It's Phantom Fireworks. They're one of the larger, more commercial fireworks companies. And then Grucci. Grucci, they're a, they're from Long Island. They're one of the most famous firework uh, families. They, it's been going on for years and years. And actually, it's an interesting history about Grucci, if you ever look it up. I think they also do the Macy's Parade. Uh, I mean, the Macy's fireworks for 4th of July in New York. Anyway, so they, they're like, oh, well, we want in now. Because, of course, Trump has to have the bis- biggest, best fireworks display ever, right? So now they're going to double the fireworks display. All right. Well, that sounds cool, right? Except that this is going to cost more money for cleanup. The Park Service has to pay for overtime. They move everything over to the West Potomac Park. So we've never done it over there. So logistically, let's hope it all goes off without a hitch. Who knows? But the, the Park Service was actually looking to possibly cancel their contract with the original fireworks providers, this Garden State Fireworks. They were going to cancel their contract. Because they had, I think, like a three-year contract to provide the, already already approved to provide the fireworks. And then they finally determined that they couldn't legally cancel their fireworks. So now everybody's going to do their own thing. They're going to combine it somehow. This is just ridiculous, you know? I don't know. Maybe people won't really notice, but I just wish that Trump wouldn't do this kind of stuff. He just ruins everything, ruins tradition. It's not supposed to be a partisan thing. So I'm not happy about it. I mean, there's a part of me that I, I want it to pour rain. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's me being petty. But I just like, I don't want him to get this, the pictures and, and use it for campaign because that's, that's what he's going to do. He's going to use this for campaign propaganda. They have some kind of VIP ticketed area. They don't even know how they're distributing the tickets. It's just, it's not well planned. Thrown together. But that's my 4th of July rant about it all. I don't know. I don't like, I don't like the precedent. I hope that nobody decides to do that anymore moving forward. And it's just reminiscent of like what dictators do, right? Like we look at what happened at the G20 over the week, over the last weekend, and then the whole, that disgusting display with Kim Jong-un, which I talk about at length with Max Poot. That's what those guys do. That's what they do in Russia. That's what they do in North Korea because these guys have egos and they need to flex their muscles or to compensate for lack, you know, man, lack of manhood in other places. I don't know. But this is not what we do in America. It's not. But that's what we do now because of Donald Trump, because he's obsessed with the idea of being an author- authoritarian or a royal or something. You know, just like having... Jared and Ivanka, his family traveling with him and involved in, in diplomacy and involved in international affairs. 
We have a whole cadre of professionals who've dedicated their life's work to diplomacy who are better qualified than freaking Ivanka Trump. What would that, what the hell was she doing at the G20? What was Jared Kushner doing in Bahrain trying to negotiate some kind of peace deal? When it, it was ridiculous. This whole thing is ridiculous. They're not some kind of, they just don't deserve to be there because they're family members. That's not what the American people signed up for. I remember when Ivanka Trump and the whole family was on 60 Minutes right after the election. Remember this in 2016? She said she had no interest in going into government service. No, no interest. As she was flaunting jewelry pieces from her Ivanka Trump line or whatever it was. Next thing you know, her and Jared are moving to Washington and they're the, you know, the heirs to the, to the throne here. What? Do you know that Jared and Ivanka made $135 million last year, even while they're work, quote, working, whatever the hell they actually do for the White House? Now, they don't draw a salary. Thank you very much. When you, you know, appreciate that. But what do they do? What does she do? It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. But I think that's a good, a good way to, good segue into bringing in my guest for this week's Honestly Speaking, Washington Post columnist, uh, global CNN global affairs analyst and the author of the new book, his new book. It's the road not taken, <laughs> uh, the American tragedy in Vietnam. And he's also the author of the corrosion of conservatism. Why I left the right. My good friend Max Boot. So welcome back, friend of the show, Max Boot, who is um, not only my colleague over at CNN as a global affairs analyst, but he's also a Washington Post columnist and the author of a new book called The Road Not Taken, Edward Lansdale and the American Tragedy in Vietnam. And he's also the author of the book Corrosion of Conservatism, Why I Left the Right. And uh, Max's columns have just been on fire lately. He's really been nailing it and things that have been going on with this administration, both foreign and domestic. So I thought Max would be a good person to bring on based on what what Trump just did in his overseas trip. So Max Boot, welcome back to Honestly Speaking with Tara. Thanks for having me on again. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Max. Um, you always you always bring it when you're on air and in your columns because you just really synthesize what's going on and you hold nothing back and you're just honest about what's going on, which is why I like talking to you. Let's start with North Korea. Everyone saw that spectacle over the weekend with the president basically in reality show um, form, like it's like the Bachelorette or something, sending out a tweet longing for Kim Jong-un to come at him at the, at the de- demilitarized zone in South Korea. Would you, will you please be there just so I can shake your hand? I mean, it was sickening. And then the visuals of it actually happening turned my stomach. But you wrote a piece, uh, you wrote a column in the Post and uh, called Trump Crosses the DMZ, but his diplomacy is on the road to nowhere. Um, were, what did you think of that spectacle? Well, as as you suggest, I mean, clearly Donald Trump knows how to get ratings. He knows how to rivet the world's attention on him, and he did it again with his meeting at the DMZ and his uh, brief walk into North Korea. But to my mind, this is just empty uh, symbolism without much substance. It's really a photo op, and that's about it. I mean, there have now been three meetings between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, and what have they produced? The North Korean nuclear program continues completely unabated. 
so does the North Korean missile program. Kim has not dismantled a single nuclear plant. He has not dismantled a single missile. North Korea is actually more powerful today than when this whole process started in Singapore in June of 2018. Uh, so you know, what is what is legitimizing Kim Jong-un on the world stage? What is that actually getting us? It's certainly feeding Donald Trump's ego. It's gratifying his desire for attention, but it's not achieving any American foreign policy objective. Well, Donald Trump would push back and say, and he said this publicly, we're safer now, right? He came out and said, we are safer now than when I first took office because of right. all of these great achievements he claims he's, he's gotten <laughs> with North Korea. But as you said we're actually not and that North Korea hasn't really done anything. Just explain a little bit about um, what, why you think now that they are more powerful than they were before. Well, it's just simply a process of time because the more time goes on, the more nuclear weapons that North Korea builds, the more missiles they build. They have not stopped making either nuclear weapons or missiles. They have, all they have done is they have stopped testing nuclear weapons and they have stopped testing long-range missiles, although they just tested some short-range missiles that threaten our troops in South Korea and that threaten our allies in Japan. And what Trump is basically saying is like sleight of hand. He's saying, we're safer now. And arguably we are safer than we were in 2017. But the reason why we were not safe in 2017 was because Donald Trump was raising the risk of war with all of his unhinged rhetoric about fire and fury. Right, and so and as soon as he, and, right, and little rocket man, as soon as he stopped threatening North Korea with annihilation, the threat of war receded. That's actually what's changed. But I mean, he would have you believe that we were on the brink of war when President Obama was in office. That's absurd. Mm -hmm. He also claims that, you know, no other president could have possibly achieved what he's done, which is to meet with uh, Kim Jong-un and, and develop this great friendship, supposedly, with Kim Jong-un. That's another crock, Tara, because any previous president could have met with any previous North Korean dictator. Any one of them would have loved to have the kind of meeting that Donald Trump has now held three times with Kim Jong-un. And the reason why previous presidents didn't do it was not because they couldn't, but because they didn't think it was a good idea to legitimize one of the world's worst tyrants to provide him legitimacy on the international stage and in return not get very much in return. They were all, all these previous presidents were concerned they would not get any real concessions in return. And Donald Trump hasn't gotten any real concessions in return, but he doesn't seem to care because he just loves the attention. You know, I'm glad that you brought that up because he uh, went on this fantasy rant about how uh, President Obama uh, wanted to meet with, with Kim Jong-un, right. was begging, I think was the term yeah. that he used, right. and which was just not true. Former DNI um, uh, director Clapper was like, uh, that's news to me, and he would know. <laughs> you know, that's just not true. It's just Trump making things up to make himself look good again. Um, but there was something else that that I found fascinating by this whole thing is that people don't realize. I just don't think they understand that um, North Korea is very, very good at BSing to get their way. And many times the United States has tried to give it, give some concessions, and North Korea makes these promises, and then it turns out to be a bunch of BS, and they just go back to their old, you know, their, their rogue ways. And one of the examples is the idea that they are dismantling anything. And we used to have the standard that it should be complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization. We are nowhere close to that now, right? We are nowhere 
even in the in the general vicinity of that. In fact, you know, the Trump officials before the Singapore summit in June 2018 talked about complete, verifiable, and irreversible denuclearization as their model. They cited as their goal. They cited Libya as their model. They don't even talk about uh, complete. Uh, verifiable and irreversible denuclearization anymore. That's not even on the table because it's obvious that Kim Jong-un is not going to give up his nuclear weapons. And so now today you had um, a story in the New York Times claiming that officials are discussing a possible freeze in in the North Korean nuclear program as the best they can do in return from some lifting of uh, U.S. sanctions. Well, that's a long way from what Donald Trump promised when he said a year ago that you no longer have to worry about the North Korean nuclear threat. If we agree to a freeze arrangement. A, it's not clear how you could possibly verify North Korean compliance, because as you just said, they have cheated on uh, these kinds of agreements in the past, including the 1994 agreed framework. But B, uh, this would be essentially accepting North Korea as a nuclear weapon state. So this would not be ending the North Korean nuclear threat, as, as Trump said he had done. This would be enshrining or maintaining the North Korean nuclear threat in perpetuity. So this would be a pretty massive failure on the part of the administration, given Trump's rhetoric. But it could well be the best that they can do at this point, because clearly the original goals that Trump set out, they're just not going to happen. Which is worse than where we were before. Like The, the framework in 94 and the six-party talks that, that were tried by Clinton, um, you know, with China trying to lead the way, possibly. like We've tried all kinds of different ways to, to manipulate the situation with North Korea, and they've just continued to be rogue actors. But they've seemingly struck gold with Trump because they're basically getting away with doing everything they were doing before and just throwing Trump a couple of bones. I mean, the, the situation with Otto Warmbier and basically murdering an American, and, and they paid no consequence for that because human rights don't mean anything to this administration, which is a travesty. They sent back some remains from uh, the Korean War, but they're, you know, they're screwing around with the Pentagon with that now. Um, this idea that they dismantled anything where they blew up uh, one of their facilities, which was going, it was, it was in disrepair anyway. Like, they're just doing things to make it sleight of hand, and Trump seems to claim that these are victories. And then you have people over at Fox News, like Tucker Carlson, saying that, well, Kim Jong-un isn't that bad. People kill people all the time when they need to run a country. It's, it's, in, it's the world turned, up, turned upside down, Max. I mean, you are a foreign policy guy. Can you believe this? Uh, you know, what can I say, Tara? I mean, on one level, I don't believe it. But after two and a half years of Trump, I do believe it. I mean, I would not believe this was any other president, but I believe it was Trump. And, you know, you were just talking about Tucker basically, you know, uh, justifying anything that Trump is doing and justifying, you know, Trump's glad handing of this odious dictator by saying, oh, all rulers kill people. That's how you stay in power. Well, I mean, can you imagine what somebody like Tucker Carlson or Laura Ingram or any of these others, can you imagine? Imagine what they would be saying if this was President Hillary Clinton, who was saying that she was in love with Kim Jong-un, literally in love with with Kim and 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 couldn't wait to meet him and shake his hand and and develop their beautiful friendship. I mean, they would be frothing at the mouth. They would be calling for impeachment. Right. And justifiably. Because that's that's insanity. (laughs) What are we we doing here? Um, Speaking of insanity, the situation is kind of a good transition over to Iran. Um, 
you know, we had this almost uh, a military confrontation with Iran a couple weeks ago. Uh, Trump decided at the last minute, no, we're not going to drop any bombs after they shot down our drone, so he claims, and because he was worrying about civilian casualties, which I think is a bunch of bullshit, but whatever. Uh, I'm kind of glad maybe that he didn't do it because we really aren't equipped to have a military confrontation with Iran at this point because the, the Pentagon doesn't even have a sec def and things are in disarray. There's no strategy. But Iran now... They are violating the, the nuclear deal. And what incentive, watching what's going on with North Korea, what incentive do they have to, to slow down or stop their nuclear program? I would say none. Yeah, I mean, if the, if the Iranians were smart, I think what they should do is they should actually enter into talks with Donald Trump. Because basically, if you're talking with him, if you're flattering him, if you're developing this beautiful friendship with him, he'll let you get away with anything. And and I think that's a lot of the problem here. I think the fundamental problem here is is not with the actual terms of the JCPOA, the, the, as, as the Iranian nuclear deal is technically known. I mean, if you ask Donald Trump what is in the Iranian nuclear deal. I mean, what are the odds he has any idea? He doesn't know. He doesn't care. All he knows is this was a deal negotiated by Barack Obama. He hates Obama, so therefore he hates the JCPOA. But, you know, if he could negotiate his own deal, which would not be any more stringent, he would then proclaim it's the greatest deal ever. I mean, he did this with NAFTA, NAFTA. turning it into the USMCA. So uh, it doesn't add up. It doesn't make any sense. But what we do know is bottom line at the moment, both North Korea and Iran are getting more dangerous. And in both cases, even though Trump has followed very different policies, he's confronting North Korea. I mean, he's confronting Iran and he's kissing up to North Korea. Very different policies, but the result is the same, which is a complete failure and an increase of the nuclear danger from both countries. Where, where do, you, do you think this is really just about a Nobel Peace Prize for Donald Trump? trying to just figure out a way to make his place in history that he'll just do any kind of deal with North Korea. Because I feel like well, that's what's, what it's at, what's at stake here. Because I mean, he could, yeah, he could well do that. I mean, I was frankly, Tara, I got to tell you, I was a little bit surprised that he didn't do a deal with North Korea because uh, Kim Jong-un basically put one on the table in Hanoi in February where he said, you know, I will close my Yongbyon nuclear facility and in return I want sanctions lifted. And apparently Bolton and Pompeo convinced Trump not to take that deal because they know that Yongbyon is only one of many mm-hmm. nuclear facilities in North Korea. So closing that down would not have any real impact on the North Korean nuclear program. And I frankly was expecting that Trump would take that deal and say it's the greatest ever. But even though he didn't take it in February, there is still every possibility that he could take it between now and November of 2020. And then he would proclaim that he's done the greatest deal ever. He's achieved more with North Korea than any predecessor. And of course, you know, his chairing section at Fox News would would echo whatever bombastic claims that he makes. So I think that's a real possibility. I think that New York Times story about the possibility of settling for a freeze rather than denuclearization uh, is an indicator that that possibility is very much alive and being talked about within the administration. What would be a good deal in your estimation? If you had if you had the ability to advise and have an influence in this, what actually looks like a good deal? So people, when they see it, possibly they can go, okay, well, that's what we should have gotten. I mean, that's, that's a great question. I mean, I can talk about what 
would be a good deal. But I think the, the harder issue is what would be a deal that Kim Jong-un would accept and would comply with? Uh, you know, if, if in fact Kim uh, offered to stop producing nuclear weapons and even to, uh, to pare back his arsenal somewhat without eliminating altogether, that could be a deal that would justify the lifting of some U.S. sanctions if, and here's the big if, if there were intrusive inspections of the kind that the Iranians agreed to in the Iranian nuclear deal. If, if, uh, if Kim would agree to those kinds of inspections with international inspectors, with cameras at their, at their, at their nuclear facilities to verify that they're not actually building more weapons, that could be a deal worth taking. But I don't think there's any chance that Kim would agree to that kind of intrusive inspection because he doesn't want foreigners poking around in his most sensitive military sites. Right. Which was the same thing with Iran, which, I mean, there were parts of the Iran deal that weren't good where, you know, it didn't apply to the ballistic missile program. It didn't apply to military sites. There were problems with it. They could have just improved that as opposed to throwing the whole thing away with no right. um, international support. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, the situation just feels like it's it's deja vu all over again with North Korea. But watching some of these Republicans and, and conservative media try to justify this very strange, sickening, quote, love affair between the president of the United States and a murderous dictator like King Jong-un is just beyond me. I, I, it's like I, I just can't believe how far they've debased themselves. Speaking of... Um, the G20, Trump was North Korea and that whole debacle wasn't the only one overseas. Trump was at the G20 in Japan first, where he met with his other best buddy, Putin. Mm-hmm. When I watched that interaction when with him and Putin and the, talking about the election meddling and how he was laughing smugly about, oh, don't don't meddle in the election. Uh, what were you thinking at that point? I mean, I, I, I know what I wanted to, my head was about to explode. What, what were you thinking at that moment? Well, my immediate thought was it's Helsinki all over again. Right. He just will not stand up to Putin. He's a constant sycophant. He will not admit that Putin meddled in the elections, and he will not stand up to Putin. Uh, and this is just part of, you know, how his moral compass seems to operate in reverse, where he kisses up to dictators like Putin or to Mohammed bin Salman, uh, who has been uh, implicated in this grisly murder and dismemberment of my former mm-hmm. Washington Post colleague, Jamal Khashoggi. But Trump says that uh, Crown Prince Salman is doing a fantastic job. Uh, and of course, we just talked about how he's kissed up to Kim Jong-un. And at the same time, he is constantly uh, kicking our, our Democratic allies, talking right before he went to Osaka for the G20. He was talking about how the European Union is the biggest threat that we face, about how the U.S.-Japan Mutual Security Alliance is unfair. Uh, he just, yeah, I mean, he's just got it in for our Democratic allies, but he seems to have a real love affair with our with all these dictators, including, of course, Putin. Didn't the Congress just repudiate Trump with the arms sales to Saudi Arabia, wasn't there something involved um, with Congress saying, wait, hold on, what are we doing here with that? 
Yeah, I mean, both houses of Congress uh, tried to limit arms sales to Saudi Arabia to stop supporting their war in Yemen, but there weren't there not enough votes there to override a veto from Trump. So basically, he has a free hand because there's not enough Republicans who are willing to stand up to him. Well, I try to explain to people that as horrifying as Trump is on domestic policy and the way he uh, flouts the Constitution constantly with all kinds of different things domestically, it's really foreign policy where the president of the United States has the most unilateral power. And his behavior on the international stage is just every every appearance is more horrifying than the next. And yeah, I no, just, I mean, I, I, I got to say, as, as an American, I am embarrassed and ashamed for yes. my country every time Trump goes to represent us abroad. Yep. As you say, Tara, bad enough at home worse abroad because he is supposed to be the face of the entire country, not just the 40% that support him, but he has just no idea of how a president is supposed to act. And I, I, I just am mortified that this is the guy who's supposed to be representing all of us uh, overseas. Well, it's not just him, though, Max. It's also his family, apparently, because Ivanka right. Trump was everywhere and everywhere during the G20, uh, hobnobbing with the leaders of, of the G20 countries and their economic advisors, and here she is, the daughter of the President of the United States, who is, has zero qualifications to be there. She's in the middle of it. Same thing in North Korea. What the hell is she doing there? What is Jared, Jared Kushner, her husband, doing there when he's, in my opinion... Both of them shouldn't be anywhere near the White House, but uh, what? Yeah, I mean, I just, I that? just wrote a, I mean, I just wrote a column for the Washington Post in which I said, in any normal administration, Jared or Ivanka would have a hard time being appointed ambassador to the Seychelles, <laughs> but in this administration, they can do whatever they want because they're the crown prince and crown princess, and you know, Trump is is treating the U.S. government like a family-owned business, and so they can they can run amok. And you, you last week you had Jared in Bahrain announcing this. Uh, fanciful economic development plan for the Palestinians that was dead on arrival because it was so ridiculous. But that's a reminder that Trump uh, has handed the entire Middle East peace portfolio to Jared Kushner. And then, you know, I don't know what the hell Ivanka's job is, but you're right. She was front and center at the G20. And there was that one uh, hilarious uh, clip that the French government yes. produced showing this conversation between the French president, the prime minister of the UK and the prime minister of Canada and the managing director of the International Monetary Fund. And Ivanka comes, you know, bouncing into the middle of this conversation, making like awkward small talk that everybody's looking at her saying like, who is this person? And why is she here? Nobody right. can figure it out. Oh, my God. It's classic. And the look on the head of the IMS face, uh, her name escapes me right now. Christine Lagarde. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The look on her face was classic. Yeah. It was classic. Yeah. Like, what? Yeah. So what is she doing? The eye roll. Yeah. Yes, it was. It was an it was an Anderson Cooper worthy eye roll. Um Let's, let's transition in, in the last couple of minutes over to your other piece that you wrote a couple of days ago after the Democratic debates. Uh, it's the party of no ideas versus the party of bad ones. This one resonated with me because, as everyone knows, and I'm a conservative who's also very disaffected with the Republican Party. So um, I want to do anything we can to get rid of Trump. But the Democrats are making it really, really hard for people like you and me to support them when they uh, are talking about taking away private health care, Medicare for all, decriminalizing illegal immigrants crossing the border, trillions in you know student loan debt forgiveness and raising taxes. I mean, these are things that make me cringe as a conservative. I'm going, oh, my God, are these people trying to lose the election? Um, right. 
what were your thoughts on on the debate and uh, what makes them what makes the the Republicans the party of no ideas and the uh, the Democrats the party of bad ones? Well, the, you know, the fact that the Republicans are the party of, of no ideas is because Donald Trump has taken over the Republican Party. So the only real idea the Republican Party has is we have to cater to Donald Trump's whims. And so they have no plan on global warming, no plan on entitlement reform, no plan on infrastructure, really no plan on anything other than following Trump wherever he may lead. That's kind of a given at this point. But what's dismaying is that the Democratic Party is producing so many plans that are so far to the left. Uh, and, you know, you would think it would be relatively easy to run against somebody as unpopular right. as Donald Trump. All you have to do is don't alarm, you know, the rest of the population, the moderates and the independents, you know, make them uh, think that the Democratic alternative is a safe one and Trump will lose. But unfortunately, right now, the Democrats, I feel, are playing into Donald Trump's hands because he wants to paint them as these open borders yep. socialists That's who right. will take your money and, you know, flood the country with undocumented immigrants. And I mean, those are ridiculous caricatures, but the Democrats are giving them some credibility by taking these extreme positions, like saying they're going to abolish private health insurance, or they're going to decriminalize undocumented immigration or provide free medical care for all undocumented immigrants. I mean, there was just just a CNN poll that came out, which showed that about 60% of those surveyed reject those ideas. So why are the Democrats picking the most controversial and unpopular ideas to run on, obviously they're catering to their primary voters who are very progressive and to their liberal donors, but you know, they have to be very careful because they are positioning themselves out on a so far out on this left wing limb that uh, even somebody as unpopular as Donald Trump can saw it off uh, when it comes to the election. And the only way I really think that Trump wins is if he uh, makes the alternative seem scarier than him. And, and Democrats should not be playing into that. Yeah, you say that the Democrats have an embarrassment of intellectual riches or is it fool's gold, <laughs> I, which I, I think was a, a great way to put it because that's how, that's how it seems. And I think it was uh, Carville who said something over the weekend about this, about like basically are the Democrats trying to lose this? Because at at this point, they're not – these proposals are not what's going to get them elected in in those Rust Belt states and in those um, uh, Midwest states that that Democrats need to win back. These are – this ain't it. <laughs> and, right. You know, right. And, 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 and I mean, Democrats. Yeah. I mean, Democrats need to remember how they won 40 seats in the in November. How they That's picked right. up control of the House. It wasn't by going far to the left. It was actually by being pretty moderate and winning over these middle of the road suburban women across the country who are disgusted with Trump. So. Repeat that strategy in 2020. Don't alarm them by making them seem like, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders has taken over the Democratic Party. Um, Do you think any of them can beat Trump at this point? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, because he is so unpopular. I mean, I think Biden could beat Trump, but I'm not sure that Biden can actually get out of the Democratic primaries. Right. What about what do you think about Harris or Buttigieg? I think Kamala Harris has has the potential to to beat Trump. I think Pete Buttigieg does as well, although I'm concerned with Harris that she is positioning herself pretty far to the left Mm -hmm. by saying she's going to abolish private health insurance, although then she tried to walk that back. So not clear where she stands. I mean, I think they they all have potential. The ones who I don't think can succeed are Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders uh, because they are so far 
uh, to the left. But I think with the Buttigieg or uh, Harris or, or Biden, they all have a chance, but they're all going to be the subject of a vicious smear campaign, and they have to, you know, be ready to stand up to that. And unfortunately, with, you know, Biden's debate performance where, where, where Kamala gave him a, a mauling, yeah. it doesn't inspire confidence that, that Biden is going to be able to stand up to what Trump is going to do to him. Right. And whether that characterization was fair or not, I mean, I discussed earlier that I thought it was a cheap shot. And she uh, I, I can't believe she blindsided Biden that way uh, when she has her own record in California that I'm sure the progressive woke folks over there on the left would be upset about with her her old job as attorney general in, in um, California. I just thought it was a cheap shot and unnecessary. Um, but and, and the polls show that Biden lost 10 points. The new CNN yeah. poll just came out and he's lost 10 points and she gained 11. So yeah. it, he wasn't ready for it, even though he should have seen it coming. Yeah. He should have seen it coming. His campaign should have seen it coming. They should have been better prepared. And this should be a wake up call. I've been very supportive of Biden. I, too, think that he could win back those areas that Trump uh, took from the Democrats. But not if he's going to continue to campaign like this. This should be a wake up call. He's got to get his shit together <laughs> or else he's, right. it's, you know, that's the bottom line right, right there. Yeah. Bottom line. So, uh, yeah. Max Boot, thank you so much for your time. Uh, have a great 4th of July. Oh, before I let you go, I have to ask you, because I've been railing about this 4th of July uh, Trump per- Trump event that he is doing. Uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts about this? I mean, I feel like, you know, our good friend Rick Wilson wrote the wrote the best title ever, Everything Trump Touches Dies, and it applies to so many things. I love D.C. 4th of July. It's so amazing. It's beautiful. And then Trump has to now inject himself into this, and it's become something controversial. What are your thoughts on, on Trump's 4th of July celebration? Well, I think my thoughts are pretty much the same as yours. I mean, it's it's truly nauseating and disgusting that, you know, Trump wants to hijack everything and make everything about himself, including a celebration of the founding of our country. And, of course, the irony is, as he showed in Osaka and in Korea, he has no idea of any of the principles on which the U.S. is based. In fact, literally has no idea because, you know, he was asked about Putin's attack on, on Western, Western liberal, liberal yeah. democracy. Yeah. And, and Trump launched into a tirade about liberals in California. So he doesn't know the difference between West Coast liberalism and Western liberal democracy. So he literally, he literally does not know the basic foundational principles of our country. And remember, on the 4th of July, we're celebrating the Declaration of Independence, which right. is the greatest liberal document ever written about the inalienable rights of everyone to pursue life, liberty, and, and the pursuit of, of happiness. And Trump is coolest. He just thinks it's another opportunity for this garish spectacle where he can strut about and watch a bunch of tanks on parade. So this is not what America is all about. This is not what made America great. Well, somebody better tell him, you know, that about the Declaration of Independence, that they let him know that it's a liberal, one of the greatest liberal yeah, documents ever. Right. He might decide that it's trash. And, you know, what do we need this declaration for? This is, you know, this it's the worst there document you go. ever. There you go. He'll pull out of the 4th of July celebrations <laughs> once he finds out what it's all about. That's right. That's right. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm glad we can end on a moment of levity, because if we don't, I swear we're all going to have heart attacks before 2020 comes around. Max Boot, keep up the great work. Uh, everyone, you guys got to check out his column at the Washington Post. Also, his new book, The Road Not Taken. It's about the American tragedy in Vietnam. And his other book, which I enjoyed, The Corrosion of Conservatism, because I get it. I I feel you on that, Max Boot. Thank you so much, my friend, and have a great Independence Day. Thank you so much, Sarah. You're doing a fantastic job, and have a great uh, celebration yourself. 
Thank you so much. Again, a big thank you to Max Boot for joining me on this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. Always, uh, he's, he's, he's an interesting guy, and um, I just love how he just gives it to you straight. <laughs> he knows what he's talking about. He's a smart guy. So a big thank you to Max Boot. And uh, as I close this week's edition, since it is 4th of July week, I just wanted to read a little bit of the Declaration of Independence. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just want to read a couple of lines from it. I encourage everyone to go back and and, and read the Declaration and, and remember what the founding of this country was all about. Because I think we are losing a lot of those principles and foundations because of Donald Trump, who I do believe is an existential threat to our constitutional republic. So, but with that, I hope everybody enjoys their 4th of July. And um, I just want to, just want to read a little bit to remind people of what this country was founded on. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Just a little bit from the Declaration of Independence to remind everyone of this great country, what Jefferson, Franklin, and Adams drafted and ultimately instituted, and um, just a bit of reflection. So wishing everybody uh, a happy fourth, and I will see you next week. Stay safe, everyone, and I'll see you next week.